I'm Brett McGarry. Alongside Jeff Braun, we are the Couch Potatoes. Although in this case, I am not alongside Jeff Braun. Our vacation schedules haven't quite jived, so while we're here together for this episode, we're not in the same room, nor are we doing this at the same time. I recorded my stuff separately from his, so I'll be back a bit later with... Belated reviews of the new Quentin Tarantino movie, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Spider-Man Far From Home, Toy Story 4, and I'll look back at an old, sort of, Tarantino classic. But first, Jeff Braun's got a review of Fast and Furious Presents Hobbs and Shaw. We're gonna need the best trackers in the business, Luke Hobbs. I'm what you call an ice-cold can of whoop-ass. Career lawman always gets his guy. We're gonna need to operate outside the system. Deckard Shaw. I'm what you might call a champagne problem. Rogue former MI6 agent. Doesn't play well with others. If we stand a chance against Brixton, you guys have to work together. No way. This guy's a real. Fast and Furious present Hobbs and Shaw. That is the full title, as it is a spin-off of the Fast and Furious movies. This would be the ninth in the series. Behind the camera, the movie's directed by a guy called David Leach. He co-directed John Wick 1. He also directed Atomic Blonde and Deadpool 2, and has an extensive history in the movies with stunts. Good choice for this movie, and the Deadpool 2 thing explains a couple of the cameos. There are several, some meant to be surprises, but I don't think it's out of turn to say that Deadpool 2's Rob Delaney shows up for a scene and is very funny. Some of the other cameos are also very funny, some not so much. Uh, The movie's written by Chris Morgan, which is what you want because this is the same guy who's written all the Fast and Furious movies since Fast Five. It's one of the reasons for their popularity, I'm sure. He's done some amazing magic acts in turning the overall saga into a logical, at least within its own world, kind of story. Here he expands things even more, gives us a wider look into the lives and histories of Hobbs and Shaw, and opens a few windows that could lead to further movies down the road. He knows what he's doing as far as keeping the franchise going. The movie, of course, stars The Rock and Jason Statham as Hobbs and Shaw. Hobbs is a DDS agent, which is like the CIA, but more secret or something. Doesn't really matter. Shaw is, I'm not sure what Shaw is. I think he's solo, but used to be a cop and also a bad guy, and, well, it doesn't really matter either. That's what's so great about these movies. Morgan sweats bullets trying to make them make sense, but doesn't really matter in the end. It only really matters and that I feel like I'm in capable hands because he bothered to do all the scripting histrionics. The story is this. They hate each other, as we've seen in the previous movies, but they're also forced to do a job together. The job is that Vanessa Kirby has stolen a virus that could kill the world. Now, she hasn't really stolen it. We see in the opening scene that she takes it to prevent the real bad guy, Idris Elba, from stealing it. He plays Brixton, an agent from a shadowy organization known as Etienne. He's part man, part machine, and refers to himself as Black Superman, which is good since The Rock is basically Superman at this point, too, so it's only fair to beef up the bad guy to superhuman strength if the fight is going to be believable in any way. There are a few twists and turns along the way. There's some cat and mouse and a lot of action, and that's why we're here. Well, two reasons we're here. One, of course, the action, and two is the chemistry between The Rock and Statham. That chemistry made this movie happen to begin with. They had some great scenes together in Fate of the Furious. They actually stole the movie with their chemistry, I think, and everyone, me included, begged for this movie. And what the audience wants, the audience gets when it comes to Fast and Furious, Except, of course, for scenes between The Rock and Vin Diesel, because they don't get along anymore. 
The chemistry is back in full force, cranked up even higher than before, like they do with the action. And it's great, except it actually might be too much. You'd think that if they were going to go too far with something, it'd be on the action front, but... They actually did it with the funny bickering. It's not a huge problem. It just gets a little tiresome towards the end. The real problem, of course, is that the movie's simply too long. This movie has no business going more than two hours, and it's about two hours and 15 minutes, and Hollywood needs to just cut that out. I've been rewatching a lot of old favorites and classics I missed at the time from the 80s and 90s recently, and in the 80s especially, movies rarely went two hours long. Every scene counted and there was no fat and they could all come in under two hours. I went to the bathroom once during Hobbs and Shaw. My buddy went twice. Neither of us missed anything. That's a combined total of six to nine minutes during talking scenes where nothing of note happened. So cut it out of the movie. Of course, no one goes to the bathroom when the action starts and this movie kills it with the action. It's all great. Again, the director has the extensive IMDb in the stunt department and he does a lot of car stuff as Fast and Furious movies must. Motorcycles factor in big time uh, this time around. I'm not sure if that's a first for the series. It seems like it couldn't possibly be, but it might. There are also big trucks, a fortified dune buggies, little trucks, and a gorgeous McLaren all racing around at one point or another. A helicopter in the film's most bonkers scene as well. And the punching and kicking, of course, uh, you would expect from these guys. It's all great. Nothing really to write home about. I still think their fight in Furious 7 was more fun. There's a lot more CGI to everything now than there used to be. The eighth movie had that too, The Fate of the Furious. It really did take away from it a bit. Seven and five are still the best ones. A lot of that has to do with how they feel real, even though it's preposterous. Hobbs and Shaw, also preposterous, but feels like it's preposterous. Much as I love these movies, it might be time to think about wrapping them up. Vin Diesel says 10 will be the last one, so they have two more Fast and Furious proper movies to go. The Rock never seems to say no to anything, nor to Statham, so who knows how many Hobbs and Shaw movies we might end up with. It did feel like there was some setup for a sequel, but whether it's for a Fast and Furious sequel or a Hobbs and Shaw sequel... Who knows? We'll find out down the road. Three and a half couch cushions out of five for Hobbs and Shaw. Now let's take a look at some of the other movies in this universe. Well, let's just rank them because that's what you do when these movies come out. Furious 7 is still my favorite. Great action. That's when they added Statham to the mix. The Paul Walker stuff at the end was tragic, but it was very touching. And the bus chase on the mountain, I think, is one of my favorite sequences they've done. Fast 5 is my next favorite. That's when these movies really started getting crazy. That's when they added The Rock and they had that great heist with uh, stealing that vault. Then I guess I would rank them as Fast 8, 6, and this new one, Hobbs and Shaw. I like 8 a lot because of the Statham Rock stuff, and Charlize Theron was a good bad guy. And number 6 and Hobbs and Shaw are part of the sort of the crazy new wave versions. The first four are the worst four. The first one, I would say, has a great premise. Paul Walker's an undercover cop who infiltrates Vin Diesel's gang. It had a lot to do with street racing back then and very low-level crime, like stealing a semi-filled with DVD players. It's a story ripped off from, I don't know what, Point Break, maybe? Nevertheless, the original Fast and Furious is a good one with some bad acting, unfortunately. But outside of Vin Diesel, it was a young cast of mostly unknowns back in 2001, if you can believe that. The fourth movie is simply titled Fast and Furious. It's the bridge movie between the old and the new. It was okay, although I don't remember much of it. The third movie, Tokyo Drift, had some cool stuff, but also had some bad acting. It brought us Han, and it forced Morgan to do some scripting gymnastics a few movies later to bring him back from the dead. The worst of the movies is Too Fast, Too Furious 
is that is just garbage from top to bottom, starting with the title. Hobbs and Shaw, somewhere in the middle. It was a lot of fun. Again, three and a half coach cushions out of five for Hobbs and Shaw. Coming up next, we'll see how Tarantino does with his ninth feature film. You're listening to The Couch Potatoes. Welcome back to The Couch Potatoes. I'm Jeff. He's Brett. Time to talk a little Tarantino now with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I'm Rick Dalton. That's my stunt double. Actors do a lot of dangerous stuff. Cliff here helps carry the load. Sounds like a good friend. I try. They play the heroes. <laughs> on July 26th. Here comes trouble. But we do what we came to do. Playtime is over. If you don't beat him... He kills you. Not when Rick Dawn's got a shotgun. From Quentin Tarantino. I love that stuff. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, July 26th. It's the ninth film by Quentin Tarantino. And, of course, there are a lot of feet in it. That's his thing. It stars Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt, a slew of others as well, but mostly those two guys. It's hard to really get into it without spoilers. And this movie is much more enjoyable without spoilers. Hobbs and Shaw, spoilers, they don't really matter. Here, though, Tarantino knows what you expect and how to both reward those expectations and how to confound those expectations in a wonderful way, so it's best not to know. The basic plot is nothing really. There is no plot. A fading Hollywood actor in 1969, Rick Dalton, played by DiCaprio, tries to come to grips with the state of his career. He has his loyal sidekick and stuntman, Cliff Booth, played by Pitt, to help him through it. His neighbors are the Polanskis, that is, director Roman Polanski, and his wife, Sharon Tate. He was excited about her prospects in Hollywood. I was sort of spellbound all the way through it. I find his movies just crackle with this kind of energy, even when nothing much is really happening. It's also the most gentle Tarantino movie in a way, only in that I think it's his first movie that doesn't star characters who are gangsters, revenge-seeking cowboys, or Axis and Allied soldiers. In other words, Rick Dalton and Cliff Booth do not carry guns, at least not real ones, at all times. On the other hand, the Manson family is featured heavily, and they were, of course, murderous people, and just knowing they are there does add a sense of dread to many scenes, not the least of which would be a Brad Pitt trip to Spawn Ranch, where the Manson family live. Tarantino does his thing where he mixes the truth with fiction, so you never really know what's going to happen. We've seen it before, and he's one of the few people who can actually pull off stuff like this. Of the things we can talk about without getting spoilery, uh, there's the Hollywood of it all. It's in the title, so it's no secret. Tarantino loves the movies, and in that sense, this movie was sort of inevitable. There's a lot of attention to detail in 1969 Los Angeles, and it's actually kind of staggering. The sets, the clothes, the cars, the signs they drive by, all of it. It'll take several viewings to absorb it all. And for me, the most impressive thing, and I'm biased, of course, was all this old-time radio stuff. There were a lot of ads and talk and just the voices you used to hear on the radio and that style of speaking. Very cool. It sounds legit. And with Tarantino, some of it very well may have been the actual thing. A lot of it was probably made up. Also knowing him, you know, it just could be anything. That's the beauty about what he's doing here. He blends his facts and the fact and fiction into whatever he wants it to be. He creates his world on screen, and he is the god of this world. I'd also point out that knowing the detailed history of the Manson family isn't really necessary. I've never done a deep dive on any of that stuff, and it didn't take anything away from the movie. Again, Tarantino doing whatever he wants, regardless of what the history books say. So if you're one of these people that gets mad when a movie doesn't stack up to what history really was, don't watch this movie. 
The other thing we can talk about are the performances. I haven't seen Brad Pitt on screen in a long while. He was on a Netflix movie last year, or two years ago, that I'd never even heard of. Uh, He had a cameo in a movie I won't mention last year, in case you haven't seen it yet. He was in a bomb called Allied back in 2016, and he had a small part in The Big Short back in 2015. I think that's the last thing I really saw him in. Before that, it was 2011's Moneyball. I like him a lot. And I was thrilled to see him in a major role again. I'd also point out that his IMDb page now defaults to his producer's credits as opposed to his acting credits. He produced Best Picture winners 12 Years a Slave and Moonlight, among many others. As Cliff Booth in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, cool Brad Pitt returns to the screen. He's older than the last time you saw him. He's 55, and he's doing the sort of dumb guy alpha male that he does very well. So within two seconds, you sort of immediately know who this guy is. He's almost all surface. He's got a very laid-back California vibe until you provoke him. Even if he's pounding some guy, though, he's never really all that worked up about it. He fights Bruce Lee on a movie set in a marvelous scene, although apparently the Bruce Lee estate doesn't think so. He's also the main character in the movie's most tense scene, this visit to the Spawn Ranch, home of the Manson family. Cliff has foolishly offered a hitchhiking member of the family a ride to the ranch where he used to make cowboy movies earlier in his career as a stuntman. Mostly, though, he's just a lot of fun, ambling through life, driving his buddy Rick Dalton around. Now, DiCaprio really brings it as Dalton. The guy's on an emotional roller coaster throughout the movie. He's a fading star and really starting to feel like it, not enough to really do anything about it. He tries his hardest on set but is humiliated when he biffs the scene. In maybe the best scene of the movie, he befriends a child actor, Trudy, who threatens to steal the movie. In general, though, he's a typical Hollywood head case with the ego and insecurity and all of that. DiCaprio really plays, though, his identity crisis in a way that I think everyone can relate to. We've all wondered at one point or another if we've worn out our welcome somewhere. Also, it's his first movie since The Revenant, which was four years ago. Not sure what he's been wasting his precious time on. So good to see both DiCaprio and Pitt back on the big screen in big roles in a major movie and a good movie to boot. In what I know what's become a bit of a complicated issue For some, Margot Robbie plays Sharon Tate. Uh, Again, can't get into it without spoilers, so I'm not going to. Given that she was a real-life murder victim, I think that uh, Margot Robbie and Tarantino did a great job, and they had the blessing of Sharon Tate's family as well. And even though I can't talk about it in any detail, the ending is amazing. It may be the most bonkers thing that Tarantino's done. If it's not, it's close to it. The movie's two hours and 40 minutes long, and while it did sort of fly by, I do think history will show that this one might be a little too long. That seems to be the main complaint from people I've talked to who have seen it already. I don't mind a long, meandering scene that has no specific plot value in a Tarantino movie because they're just so well-written and so well-performed, but I get why a two-hour, 40-minute long movie is just not doable for some people. Tarantino's long been one of my favorites. I honestly don't think he's made a bad movie. I'd say he's nine for nine. He calls this his ninth movie. And with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, he's delivered another winner. It's got to be one of the Oscar frontrunners this year. But for now, I'm giving Once Upon a Time in Hollywood four and a half couch cushions out of five. I don't know exactly where this movie will end up in the final Tarantino rankings when all is said and done, but until then, here are my rankings of his other movies, and nothing is going to top Pulp Fiction. That is number one with a bullet. And I will strike down upon thee with great vengeance and furious anger those who attempt to poison and destroy my brothers. And you will know my name is the Lord when I lay my vengeance upon thee. 
It is a flat-out masterpiece. I have a soft spot for Jackie Brown. I always put it second. It's long and winding and could probably be trimmed. But like I said before, the writing and performances are all just so good that I don't care how long it goes. It's just a joy to sit in that world. Django Unchained, I put it number three. It's better than you remember, even though some of it is kind of tough to watch. It looks great. It's a good revenge story, and it runs a little deeper than the Kill Bills. And again, the performances, those top three all have one thing in common, Stone Cold Masterclasses in Acting from Sam. Samuel L. Jackson. Him delivering Tarantino dialogue is about the best thing a movie can be. People point to De Niro and Scorsese as the ultimate actor-director pairing, but for me, it's Sam Jackson and Quentin Tarantino. Jackson not winning the Oscar for Pulp Fiction is still the biggest snub in Oscar history for me. Fourth on my list, Inglorious Bastards, followed by Reservoir Dogs at fifth, and then rounding out the list would be The Kill Bills, Hateful Eight, and Death Proof, although those last two I've not seen in a long time. Even The Kill Bills I haven't seen in a long time. If I watch them again, I might change up the list, but that's where it is for now. Brett saw Once Upon a Time in Hollywood as well. We'll hear what he thinks about it next. You're listening to The Couch Potatoes. I'm Brett McGarry, the other half of The Couch Potatoes, and I wanted to take a few minutes with you now to review some of the movies that I've seen this summer. Most recently, the ninth feature film from Quentin Tarantino, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. To my right is Bounty Law series lead and Jake Cahill himself, Rick Dalton. And to my left is Rick Stutt double Cliff Booth. So, Rick, uh, explain to the audience exactly what it is a stunt double does. Actors are required to do a, a lot of dangerous stuff. <laughs> Cliff here is meant to help carry the load. Is that uh, how you describe your job, Cliff? What, carrying his load? Yeah, it's about right. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is set in Los Angeles in 1969 at the height of hippie Hollywood. Leonardo DiCaprio plays Rick Dalton, a Hollywood actor, best known for being on a TV western a few years earlier. Brad Pitt plays Cliff Booth, his longtime stunt double. They're both struggling to find work and stay relevant in Hollywood, in a Hollywood they don't really understand anymore. The trailers for this movie didn't reveal much of what the movie was about, and I want to keep it that way for the purposes of this review, but I will point out they get to meet some cool people along the way, like Bruce Lee. My hands are registered as lethal weapons. We get into a fight, I accidentally kill you, I go to jail. Anybody accidentally kills anybody in a fight, they go to jail. It's called manslaughter. Also of note, Rick Dalton has a famous next-door neighbor, Sharon Tate, who, as you might remember, is brutally murdered along with her house companions on August 9, 1969 by members of the Manson family. How they all tie together in this movie, I will let you discover that for yourself. In the meantime, I will tell you the supporting cast includes... Timothy Oliphant, Dakota Fanning, Al Pacino, Damian Lewis, Michael Madsen, Kurt Russell, and the late Luke Perry, plus many more. Last night, we watched a Rick Dalton double feature. <laughs> oh, the shooting. <laughs> I love that stuff, you know, with the killing. A lot of killing. Anybody order fried sauerkraut? I will start by saying I'm not a huge Quentin Tarantino superfan. That's not to imply I don't like his work. In fact, of the movies I've seen of his, I really like them. I've seen 1992's Reservoir Dogs. Loved it. 1994's Pulp Fiction. Loved it. 
2003 and 2004's Kill Bill Volumes 1 and 2, considered to be one movie. Loved those. The 2007 Tarantino half of the Grindhouse double feature Death Proof, which is widely viewed as his worst movie, but I still dug it. And 2009's Inglorious Bastards, which was also great. I've yet to see 1997's Jackie Brown, 2012's Django Unchained, and 2015's The Hateful Eight. I tell you that I'm not a super fan, so you take what I have to say with caution, because I liked Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, but I didn't love it. But if you're a big Tarantino fan, you'll maybe, even likely, enjoy it more than I did. Again, not to say I did not enjoy it. I liked it quite a bit. Leonardo DiCaprio gives, yet again, a tour de force performance as the semi-alcoholic, insecure Rick Dalton. In the hands of less capable actors, Rick Dalton would have just been a cliché. But in DiCaprio's hands, you really feel bad for the guy, even if he is kind of a self-absorbed doofus. And the performance is relatable in real life, or to real life, in many respects. Like, for example, when he's hungover... You feel his hangover with him. It's not just like, oh, he wakes up and splashes some water in his face and he seems kind of hungover. No, you believe that he spent the night staying up way too late, having too many drinks, smoking too many cigarettes. And if you've been down that road and had to wake up a couple of hours later to go to work, you know what that's like. You know the pain, you know all the stuff you got to cough up. So I sat there just giggling to myself as DiCaprio is kind of stumbling, sweating, and snorting his way through his day while he tries to get himself together. But it's his desperation to be valued as an actor, to really nail it and be a star. That makes him someone you want to root for. Like, that comes through through the entire film. Pitt, meanwhile, also delivers a great performance. He doesn't have nearly as much meat on the bone as DiCaprio in terms of dialogue, but his character exudes a calm, confident charisma, along with a great dry sense of humor like you heard in that manslaughter clip. And his showdown with Bruce Lee is maybe my favorite part of the movie. He does get to have... Some fun with dialogue when he enjoys some drugs, and it was kind of reminiscent of one of Pitt's earliest performances as Floyd the Stoner in the 1993 film True Romance, which Tarantino wrote and was directed by Tony Scott. More on that movie in a moment. Margot Robbie plays Sharon Tate, and she's not so much a character in this film as she is... I don't even know what word to use. A shadow? Tough to explain, but she doesn't have a lot of scenes, and the scenes she's in, she doesn't have a lot of dialogue. We don't really get to know her, but I think her inclusion in this movie is meant to be part of a larger message Tarantino is delivering about the loss of innocence in Hollywood in that time. The movie very much seems like a love letter to the Hollywood of old before it got darker and grittier in the 70s. The subtle touches throughout the movie to remind you that it's 1969 helped give it a real sense of authenticity, like all the old radio ads you hear when they're driving around through the city. The music throughout was great, although, I mean, Tarantino soundtracks are always great, so that's no surprise. Huge supporting cast, as mentioned, all with small but in many cases crucial huge parts, and they're all excellent. But in the end, after a long two hours and 40 minutes, I was kind of left wondering, what was the point of all this? Last time I checked Rotten Tomatoes, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was sitting at 85%. One of the negative reviews said something like, I don't really know what kind of story Tarantino was trying to tell here, and I'm not sure he knew either. I personally would somewhat agree with that, because you got one story 
which is Rick Dalton and Cliff Booth struggling to make it. And on the other hand, you've got Sharon Tate and the Manson family. The stories converge as Tarantino movies. They all, all often have, you know, varying storylines that sort of converge. And then, but then in this case, it just kind of ends. And what the whole point was, I don't really know. I do know that it's worth worth seeing. Excuse me, I just bit my cheek. LOL. It's worth seeing just for the performances alone. Also, even though it's a long two hours and 40 minutes, Tarantino takes his time with this movie, and it's an often just kind of relaxing ride, so I will forgive him for making the movie almost three hours long. Yeah, he could have made the the movie shorter, but some of the scenes were slow and almost mundane, but not boring, if that makes sense. But I still just don't really know what the point was, other than using two somewhat relatable aging Hollywood performers to tell the story of a transition in Hollywood that is ultimately marred by a horrific tragedy, courtesy of the Manson family. So I'm going to give Once Upon a Time in Hollywood three and a half couch cushions out of five. Definitely worth seeing. I just don't think that this will stand up as Tarantino's greatest work or even close to his greatest work. Now, while we're on the subject of Tarantino... The next day, the day after I watched Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, still with Tarantino on the brain and after reading a list that one of my friends put together counting down his favorite Tarantino movies, which also included ones that Tarantino wrote but did not direct, I felt an urge to watch True Romance, directed by Tony Scott, written by Tarantino. From the director of Top Gun and Beverly Hills Cop 2. A con man. Ask him if he got the letter. Did you get the letter? What letter? No, Tom, Tom, we gotta go. A call girl. You call for a day? Huh? Ah! I'm out of there. She a four-alarm fire or what? She seems very nice. What are you doing in L.A. Huh? And a suitcase full of trouble. My name is Vincent Cocotti. I work as consul for Mr. Blue Lou Boyle, the man your son stole from. Christian Slater plays Clarence. Patricia Arquette plays Alabama. She's a call girl hired to go bump into him at the movie theater, hang out with him, and show him a good time. But they fall in love immediately. Clarence goes to see her pimp to relieve her from duty, and the storm that they get sucked into from there is... Totally insane. And True Romance has two of my favorite scenes in any movie. One of them is Clarence and Drexel, the white pimp who doesn't think he's white. He's played by Gary Oldman. Let's see. We're sitting down here ready to negotiate. (laughs) You've already given up your I'm still a mystery to you. But I know exactly where your white ass is coming from. That's about all I can really play from that scene. Would have taken me too long to edit the clip had I included anything more. Lots of colorful language. Also, as an aside, Gary Oldman makes that character so memorable. He has he has such a chameleon of an actor. But that's what Tarantino does. He gives actors such good stuff to work with through his dialogue, and actors give amazing performances as a result because they have so much fun with the material. The other scene has Christopher Walken, the gangster, and Dennis Hopper, the security guard, Clarence's dad, having a tete-a-tete. Here's a snip of Walken's dialogue. Sicilians are great liars. Best in the world. I'm Sicilian. My father was the world heavyweight champion of Sicilian liars. 
From growing up with him, I learned the pantomime. There are 17 different things a guy can do when he lies to give himself away. Guy's got 17 pantomimes. Woman's got 20, guy's got 17. But if you know them, like you know your own face, they'd be lie detectors all to hell. Now, what we got here is a little game of show and tell. You don't want to show me nothing, but you tell me everything. I know you know where they are, so tell me. Before I do some damage, you won't walk away from I've watched True Romance a number of times over the years, but it's easily been over a decade since I last watched it. And I got to say, this movie has lost some of its charm for me. It is so clearly a product of the early 1990s, and as a result, it feels quite cheesy at times. Performances are still top-notch. The dialogue is still great, although, again, product of its time. Some of the homophobic language, no longer acceptable. Some of the racist language, no longer acceptable. Although, probably wasn't acceptable then either. Tarantino likes the N-word. I don't know. The characters are still great. The shootout at the end, still thrilling. Although it feels very 90s. And the musical score, it's just so corny. Xylophones! Not enough xylophones in movies. At least I think it's xylophones. And Hans Zimmer did the score. Not not often you'll hear me say that I'm not a fan of a Hans Zimmer musical score. I'm not going to give this movie a score because, I, hey, I still love it. It just made me kind of sad how corny a lot of it felt, how it was no longer just a great movie. Now it's a great movie that was clearly from 1993. It's, it, it's not timeless like other Tarantino movies. Like, I haven't watched Pulp Fiction in a long time, but I suspect that one is timeless. True Romance, not so much. Still enjoyable, but like, for example, my younger girlfriend checked it out, and she thought it was okay, just okay. She also says that she's not a big Tarantino guy. Also, I never understood why Clarence would sometimes talk to Elvis Presley in the mirror. Like, he would pretend that Elvis Presley was in the room. Like, was Clarence mentally ill? Also... I was later told I should have gotten my hands on the director's cut instead of the regular theatrical version that I accessed on my Shaw Blue Sky PVR for free, but whatever, I still enjoyed it. It's fun, and then Tarantino dialogue is delivered by excellent actors who all clearly very much enjoyed what Tarantino gave them to work with. Up next, a couple of quick reviews of other movies I've checked out this summer, including Spider-Man Far From Home and The Toys Come Back for a Fourth Time. You're listening to The Couch Potatoes. I'm Brett McGarry, alongside Jeff Braun. We are The Couch Potatoes. Two more movies I want to tell you about that I've watched this summer. Just in case you haven't seen them yet, or you have seen them, and want to maybe disagree with me. Let me know on Twitter or Instagram, at Brett McGarry. The first one is The Spider-Man. The world needs you. How's the suit? A little tight around the old web shooter. Parker. Okay, I'll shut up. Spider-Man Far From Home, released in early July. The end of July hadn't even arrived yet, and Far From Home had already made more than Spider-Man Homecoming's entire run back in 2017. Homecoming made $334 million domestic and $880 million worldwide. Far From Home, as of July 29th, was at $344 million domestic and over a billion worldwide, and it's easily got a few weeks left in the theater before it gets yanked. I've often said Spider-Man is my favorite superhero, and I loved this movie. I really enjoyed Homecoming, but I felt like it was too influenced by Tony Stark. Right down to all the tech that Spider-Man had in his fancy suit, it seemed to take away from it being a Spider-Man story. I mean, it was still a great movie, 
I'm just nitpicking. I did enjoy Far From Home more, though. This very much felt like a Spider-Man movie through and through. Still had all the tech from Stark, but it just felt like Spider-Man wasn't so much in Tony Stark's shadow in this. And this felt like a Spider-Man movie right through to the mid-credits scene where Spider-Man's whole life gets turned upside down by an old familiar adversary. And what I mean by it felt like a Spider-Man story is he's a normal kid who happens to have superpowers. He wants to use his powers to help the world, but he also still wants to be a high school kid and go on a class vacation and enjoy himself. Wants to leave Spider-Man behind for a few days, especially after the events of Endgame, but a mysterious force from another dimension has other plans. The visuals are spectacular. It was especially good in 3D. Jake Gyllenhaal was great as Mysterio. I don't really have any complaints. It was a thrill. It was fun. It looked great in 3D. I guess the only thing I can complain about is that it didn't completely blow my socks off and give me something I haven't really seen before. But this is otherwise a perfect Marvel movie. Four and a half couch cushions out of five for Spider-Man Far From Home. One more I want to touch on quickly. Toy Story 4. Everyone, Bonnie made a friend in class. Oh, she's already making friends. No, no, she literally made a new friend. I want you to meet Forky. Uh, hi. Hello. Hi. Ah. <gasps> He's a spook. Yes. Toy Story 4 debuted in late June to almost unanimously positive reviews. Again, these movies are always slam dunks. And I've got a positive review, although I argued back in 2010 that Toy Story 4 should win Best Picture, for which it was nominated. Didn't win, but I think the argument could be made that it deserved it. Toy Story 4, not even close to the same caliber. It was fun to visit with these characters once again, but it just lacked the emotional weight of the previous entries, and the franchise is just starting to feel tired. So, still a fun movie. I'd recommend it to everyone, but Best Picture nominee, it is not. Three and a half couch cushions out of five for Toy Story 4. That's all time we've got. I'm Brett McGarry. My co-host is Jeff Braun. We're back together in the same room next week. We are the Couch Potatoes. And remember, if it requires getting up off the couch, don't bother. <laughs>